We continue now in our worship with the reading of Scripture. Before you stand, keep in mind that it's more than just the reading of Scripture. It's the hearing of Scripture. In Psalm 119, verse 11, it says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Think of the things that you may have hidden. Maybe you've hidden food so no one else in your family eats it. You and only you know where the chocolate is. Uh, or there's something valuable that you've, you've, you've hidden it. You're, you're, you're hiding it, but it's more than hiding it. You're guarding it. You're protecting it. You don't want it being taken away. And in the parable of the sower in Mark 4, there is seed that's sown on the path, and birds come and immediately devour it. And the seed, Jesus says, is the word. The word is sown, and he explains that the birds that come and immediately devour it is Satan comes when the word is heard and he takes it away from some people. So in a moment, you're going to rise, scripture will be read, and you will be hearing the word of God. But it's not enough. As you're hearing the word, hide it, guard it, protect it. In the garden, the first Adam had the word of God, but Satan came and snatched it from him. But the second Adam in the wilderness, Satan made the attempt to steal the word of God from him, but he stood by that everlasting and enduring word. Please rise now as we read from Scripture, Daniel chapter 5, verses 1 through 31, the entire chapter. Hear now the word of God. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. And the king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever! Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king, and the king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, 
If you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house you've brought in before you, and you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you've praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and his writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Many, many, tekel, and parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Many, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was closed with purple and a chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed and Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. May the Lord bless the reading of the scripture and may it be hidden in our hearts that we might not sin against him. Please be seated. Please join me in prayer before we uh, open up God's word for us today. God, we come before you thanking you for your word, thanking you for your Holy Spirit. Please open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts. Please let not the feebleness of the speaker inhibit your holy word. Please strike it to our hearts so that we might glorify you with what you have for us to learn today. In your son's name we pray, amen. I am sure you're not my biggest fan already. I've made you stand for 31 verses. Poor Rob Roy, I made him read 31 verses. And for those who have been here for some many sermons past last year, I at times have preached a whole sermon on what made it through half of one verse in Daniel 2.4, um, and yet here I am taking on an entire chapter all at once. Uh, Kelly was telling me, uh, Kelly Eaton, before the service when she was putting together the children's bulletin and she saw some of the, the points on the back and what it was, she was excited. I warned her, I'm, like, I'm nervous about this because it's a whole chapter. And she gave permission to me to skip lunch. So. Uh, I, I have that. I have that in the bag. And yet, I love food as much as you all and have no fear. No meatball will go left behind. We will find a way to get through all 31 verses. The only reason we're reading all of this, though, is not just to read it, not just to hear it or go through it. It's because I can't find any other way to slice and dice this chapter to focus in on a sermon than to read it all of it together and see this whole scene play out. And so as we go through this and we look at this from the perspective of characters in a Shakespearean play, 
And we look through this and see the narrative and the way God uses storytelling of what was a real historical event, you're going to see how it all comes together. You can't have the first half without Daniel giving the interpretation. You can't have the interpretation without the outcomes. You can't have the second half without the first half and the setting. So we're going to go through it all today. So this, to me, reads very much like a Shakespearean play. We have uh, four characters here that we're going to talk about. You'll see them on the back of your bulletin. We have an absentee father. Okay, this character is played by Nabinidus, an absentee father. Okay, played by Nabinidus, and he's never on stage in this play. Never once. You didn't hear his word, uh, his name read in all of this, and yet he factors in into what God would have us to know today. We have the smothering mother, the smother, played by the queen mother. She enters the stage left in verse 10. We get her coming into the play and um, uh, adding her input. And then we have our precious little baby, Belshazzar, the main character, sweet little boy. He is in this play from the beginning. He's on center stage from the beginning, and he doesn't leave the stage, uh, unfortunately, until verse 30, um, in which he has a very abrupt leaving of the stage. Uh, and then lastly, we have mean Pastor Danny, Daniel, played by Daniel. And this, this man is a man who brings no good news to a ruler. Uh, and he will enter the scene in verse 13 for us. So we're going to dig into these characters and see. And while I playfully talk about a play or a scene, it's because knowing story structure and good storytelling is helpful. But I don't want at any point it to be thought that I don't see this as ex historical accurate narrative. This is something that happened. And yet, we see excellent storytelling by Daniel and by God through Daniel. Look, let's do a quick overview of the whole chapter so we kind of have its parts together, and then we're going to dive into these characters. In Act 1, we have the first four verses. And what we see there is this is the setting. This is all is well. We're having a feast, thousands of lords. We're having drinks. Everything's good. And then in the next verses, in verses 5 through 9, enter conflict. Uh-oh, hand shows up, an eventful happening. Things are no longer at peace and at rest. And instead, we now have a conflict and something that needs to be resolved. Then we progress in verses 10 through 12, and we have our quest, our hope entered into this. We have the queen coming in. It's like, aha, here's, here's what you need to do. Go secure this man. That's our quest. Then, as we have hope, and it's starting to build slowly, building up, we have the drama, and now this building up, we have, in comes this character. The quest is successful. They've brought in Daniel. And you're excited because it's an action story. It's building up. This mysterious figure comes in, secures victory. All will be peaceful and drinking at a feast hall again soon. But we quickly realize, after going through in section 13 through uh, 23, as it's building up to the climax, this is not an action story, it's a tragedy. It turns the man who they thought was to be the savior and the one to bring hope and to answer their questions and help them sleep at night is instead a presiding juror. He's the one who comes in and reads the guilty verdict. We then have our climax of the story in 24 through 28, We'll circle back to that in a second. We have the climax there, the reading of the judgment, the interpretation of what the hand wrote. And then we have the ending of the story. We have resolution for our main character, ending in death in verses 29 through 31, and the end and close of the scene and the curtain drop, and time for a new regime to come in. And so this storytelling structure, this kind of arc that you'll see if you ever take an English lit class and all those types of things, you'll see it's throughout this. It is gripping and telling stories, the type of thing that people make movies about. And yet, in all of this, in the story and the structure, the characters reveal so much. And God's judgment of these characters reveals quite a lot. You'll notice the title of the sermon is How Much Does Your Family Weigh? Okay, provocative question, but the focus, if you haven't noticed, means that the peak of the climax is in verse 27 with our word tekel. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. 
when the time comes, what will your family weigh? Will they be found wanting? That's the question we're going to ask over and over as we look at these characters. We're going to see a dysfunctional family sitting at the table with us, a dysfunctional family. But I think we'll all quickly notice this is our family, and even worse, this is us. So as we ask ourselves the question, and I ask us repeatedly, what how will your family weigh on the day of judgment? When you are weighed in the balances, will you be found wanting? Will your family be found wanting? We need to, we need to have a better answer than what Belshazzar uh, reveals for us today. Okay, so let's get into the characters. We got our absentee father. Okay, Nabinidus is not even talked about in this passage. In fact, the phrase, your father, said to Belshazzar repeatedly in this, talks about Nebuchadnezzar. But if you look on the back of your insert, the back of your song, you'll see there's a diagram for you. And we have the royal succession, a tragic tale, of who's ruler in Babylon. We have, uh, you see the th our three main characters, Nabinidus, the one who in this they call the queen is actually the queen mother, Belshazzar's mother and Nabinidus's wife. And then we have Belshazzar. And how Belshazzar gets to be ruler and actually co-regent starts with Nebuchadnezzar dying and his son, Amel Marduk, becoming king. He was king for just two short years until his brother-in-law, Nereglissar, um, killed him and took over. Uh, he gave his son to a very poor family, or a very poor son, or his wife, daughter, to a very poor husband, it would seem. And then we have Labashi Marduk, who is his son after Neglisar mysteriously dies. And months later, we have Nabinidus uh, killing in a coup Labashi Marduk and taking over the throne in a coup. So Nabinidus, for as much as we know, is in no relation biologically to Nebuchadnezzar, and yet we will see when that phrase, your father, is read in this text, in, especially in Armenian um, and, or in Aramaic, excuse me, and in general in this text, your father is frequently speaking to a predecessor. It's his predecessor. And so we'll see this. And yet, our main character is Belshazzar, not Nabinidus. Nabinidus ruled for six years, but he worshiped a god that was different than the patron god of Babylon. Patron god of Babylon is Bel, also called Marduk. And if you look back at those names, wait a minute, Dan Nebuchadnezzar gave Daniel Belshazzar. Nebuchadnezzar's son, Amel Marduk. Then we have Labashi Marduk. Then we have Belshazzar. Um, uh, excuse me, Daniel's name is Belteshazzar. Um, and then we have Belshazzar. And if you're ever trying to remember Belteshazzar versus Belshazzar, Belshazzar did not get the belt. Okay, he was not disciplined well. He didn't raise up too good. Daniel got the belt. So if the belt's there, you know it's Daniel. But we have in all of this, we have six years of rule for Nabinidus, worshiping the wrong patron god of Babylon, not the patron god of Babylon. Instead, he worships the god Sin. Okay, his name was Sin. Very uh, convenient for us English speakers, but his name was Sin. And it, he grew so unpopular that he raises his son, his young son, to the throne to be co-regent, and then he exiles himself, Nabinidus exiles himself for a decade, and he goes off to Tima for a decade. He spends 10 years there, and our story being on um, October the 12th, or excuse me, October the 11th, 539 BC, that's the night of this uh, chapter five, Nabinidus had come back after 10 years in 546 BC, and was there present for about six to seven years uh, until the scene. And so what we'll see as we kind of go to talk about the rest of the characters and the impact on this, is Nabinidus is not that great at being there. First of all, we've already heard this history. Being in the royal family, being in the royal court is a dangerous game. You're, you're gonna get killed, you're, you're going to be assassinated likely by family, someone else aspiring to the throne. And so when Nabinidus realizes, I'm not popular, who should I put, I'm at fear of my life, who should I put in a dangerous position? Let me put my son, right? Real, real loving fatherhood. Now that I've put you there, let me abandon my son and wife for a decade to go save my skin, my well-being. Well, then beyond that, he comes back, 
He finally comes back. Everything's good. I feel like coming back. I can, I can rule again, and they're co-rulers together. Nabinidus, once he comes back, he's hanging around. But why is he not in this scene? Two days earlier, two days earlier, on October 9th, 539 BC, Nabinidus goes off to battle to fight King Cyrus, Cyrus and Persia, and so he sneaks off to battle, okay? And I say sneak, he's a king leaving with a retinue. There, there is no sneaking going on here. He goes off to battle in Syria to fight Cyrus. And you can guess how that battle goes, because two days later we know the outcome. The kingdom's handed over. And yet, the king lived. Nabinidus, being the great dad that he is, he fought the battle, realized it was losing, he fled, and rather than come home and get his family, which was sure to die, and his son, who definitely died as recorded in scripture, he fled until he felt like there was a safe enough time for him to present himself to the king, come to Darius and present himself and bend the knee, and Darius allowed him to live. So we have this great dad uh, who left for a decade, left his son to live there, rule, and then die, uh, eventually die after he had come back and abandoned again and not come back for the safety of his son. So the question has to be asked, okay, Nabinidus, is this all your fault? You're an absentee father. You, you have not taught your son anything. Your son didn't know about Belshazzar, didn't have Belshazzar, excuse me, Belteshazzar come to mind. You didn't have Daniel come to mind on how to handle this. His dad wasn't there to give him lesson after lesson and to teach him the ways of both ruling, but also to teach them what to do. Who is the God most high? And Nabinidus could have taught Belshazzar who the God most high was. He was high enough in rank that just six years after Nebuchadnezzar's death, he's already high enough in rank that he rules, uh, that he's close enough to do a coup and take over the throne. And beyond that, we see his wife in verse 10. She comes out and tells them, wait a minute, there's this man, Belshazzar, or excuse me, uh, Belteshazzar, Daniel, there's this man who has excellent wisdom. So his wife knows Nabinidus would certainly have the knowledge of what had happened in Nebuchadnezzar's court. It's extraordinary. It's eventful, impacting events that Daniel recounts here. The events of becoming a wild beast of a man for seven periods of time until God restored him. Why? Because he learned that the God most high ruled. So this is all Nabinidus' fault. He's an absentee dad. He wasn't there to teach who the most high God was, who is ruling in this kingdom. This is all his fault. He is certainly guilty, and if anything, I, as we progress to the smothering mother, I start to think, I have sympathy for the smothering mother. Of course, she's, she's going to protect her precious little baby. She's a mother. That's what they do. On top of that, her husband abandoned her for a decade with her son in the most dangerous job in the kingdom. What? She has a spoiled, dangerous son in a dangerous job with no husband in sight. She's going to protect her baby. We see in verse 6 of Daniel 5, the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. This, she sees her, her baby's colors changed. His knees are shaken. He's, his limbs are given out from under him. He's fallen down. Her precious little baby, her little angel, is in trouble and emotionally distraught by what he's seeing. She's not distraught because she has a solution. Every good mom does, right? They see their child in struggling, in need, and what do they do? They come in and soothe their little baby. She comes in, and we see in verse 10, the queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. She's coming in and trying to soothe him. Calm down. It's going to be okay. Don't, don't, don't be afraid. I got you. It's okay. I have an answer for you. And at first thought, you might, I even have sympathy for her, this abandoned husband. She's trying to help her son. Her son's in need. And she comes in and says what might seem on the surface as good, wise words. Let's bring in this Daniel. It continues on in 11 and 12. There's a man in your kingdom 
in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Well, now mom seems like a really big Daniel fan and has hope for the sun. And you might at first think, way to go, mom. You're coming in. You're saying the guy who knows the God most high rules in heaven, the guy who is the antidote to sin and pride can come in and, and reveal this God, the actual antidote itself. He can come in. This is a good job by mom. But if I'm Belshazzar, I'm saying, mom, where you been? I've been ruling for 14 years, 14 years. And you're telling me, the person in whom has all wisdom and understanding and is excellent, you're just now telling me about. Mom, why haven't you told me about this dude before? I'd be staring at her thinking, you're telling me the best man in the kingdom who my predecessor, the greatest king in the history of Babylon, in Nebuchadnezzar, he exalted this man up to the top, and you're just now telling me because it's the only solution I should bring this man in. Way to go, Mom. Great teaching. Great parenting. You waited till now. Well, I, she doesn't have a good answer. It's probably that I love my baby boy. Daniel brings bad news, and he brings bad news to kings. He doesn't tell kings, you're a wonderful, mighty man who is a ruler and equivalent of God, like Babylonians would like to believe. Good worshipers of Bel Marduk, that, they'd like to believe that. That's not what he's telling them. Daniel comes in and says, bring yourself low because you have a God who is a God most high who brings down low all rulers. He places the rulers he wants. The authority of the throne is not yours, Belshazzar. Yeah, mom's not going to want her son to hear that. That's tough love. That's mean. That's hard. That's harsh. He has to rule a kingdom. He has to be strong. These Chaldeans, the magicians, the enchanters, astrologers, sorcerers, his retinue, they're good yes-men, the exact kind of thing that he needs. She's protecting her precious little baby. He doesn't want to hear the bad news, this rough news, even if she thinks this man is pretty solid. Now, she clearly doesn't have a saving faith, and I would say that's clear by her not faithfully teaching her son about Belshazzar and Belshazzar's, uh, excuse me, uh, Belteshazzar, Daniel, and his God. And she um, continues this, and we see this in this verse 11. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods, plural. So she knows there's divine power, but she is misattributing divine power. So she has not learned the lesson that Nebuchadnezzar had to learn. And yet she knows there's something going on here with this man. And so she tells him to call him in. So she doesn't know him faithfully. She hasn't taught she doesn't know God faithfully. She hasn't taught her son about Daniel and his God faithfully. But she's trying to protect her son. This is the only thing she can know because the only other time she's seen anything as mysterious as disembodied fingers showing up to write on a plaster wall across from the lampstand, the only time that's stuff like that's happened has been Nebuchadnezzar and his experiences, what he had brought upon himself in his sin. And so Daniel gets brought in. So you might be thinking at this point, Belshazzar has it pretty rough. Has it pretty rough. Like, he's a spoiled brat, and we'll see this really clearly. He's a spoiled brat. But is it really his fault? Dad's not there. Dad's not there, right? To the point of his mom having to come and tell him about Belshazzar. Daddy didn't stay here and teach me good, wise lessons about life and the world. Mommy coddled me from the beginning left me alone when it comes to this most high God. He, mommy hasn't taught me any of this. How was I to turn out other than a spoiled brat? You gave me a throne as a kid. My dad left for a decade. My mom coddled me. I had way too much power for my age, too much money, too much authority. What do you expect? Lest you have too much pity on Belshazzar, what do we see 
for Belshazzar in verse uh, 22 of Daniel 5. We'll get to what happens between what the mother says and me and Pastor Danny coming in in a moment. But after recounting the story of Nebuchadnezzar, a story they should have learned, they should know this by now, and they, everyone should be recounting this story, because if you remember, Nebuchadnezzar, after his story, what does he do? He sends out a proclamation to all the lands that he rules and says, know that the Most High God rules and puts in place of authority whoever he would have in authority. So everyone should know about this and talk about it, but Daniel has to tell Belshazzar about this story. So you might think, man, Belshazzar just didn't know. And we see in verse 22, and you, his son, this is Daniel talking, you, his son, Belshazzar, son of Nebuchadnezzar, or or, um, uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, your predecessor, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. Mommy wasn't so good. Daddy wasn't there. Daddy came back when it felt good to him, left when it didn't feel so good or when he needed to go deal with something, but then didn't come back when I needed him most, when I die. Is it really my fault, mom and dad? No, absolutely, it is your fault. You do not get to blame mom and dad. You knew, you knew, Belshazzar. That's all Daniel has to say. Daniel doesn't talk about mom. Daniel doesn't talk about dad. We can get that from history, archaeology, documented texts. We can get that even from scripture, the behavior of these people. And yet, you do not get to claim your mom and dad as your fault, the fault, Belshazzar. This is such a tremendous tale. You heard this at least once at some point. You should know. You should know. Before we go on to mean Pastor Danny, this is where we have to start looking ourselves in the mirror in this. Men of RRBC, are you a spiritual Nabinidus? Are you a spiritual Nabinidus? Are you leaving your family spiritually to fend for themselves on what matters most for periods of time until it feels best to you? I'm feeling God today. Let's talk about God, kids. Let's talk about God, wife. Let's pray. Let's be together. As one pastor put it, do you outsource your responsibility of your household to the church? The church will teach my wife about God, women's ministries. The church will teach my children Sunday school and kids' ministries. God has commanded you to lead your household doesn't necessarily mean you need to exposit and teach some deep insight. You don't have to learn Hebrew. You don't have to learn Greek. You don't have to learn Syriac, Aramaic, any of the texts of Scripture of, in terms of the original text. What you need to teach them is what it means to be faithful, consistently faithful. If Nabinidus was a better father, he would be there talking about the God Most High day after day after day with his son. And although Belshazzar knew, and he did know, It is different when a father has taught you a lesson over and over and over. I remember to this day the advice my dad gave me on my wedding day. I was 21 years old, been dating my wife for a while, and I I remember being just excited out of my mind, I'm about to get married, and my dad gave me advice and it was great advice. Unfortunately, I'm not gonna share it with you all, keep that between him and I, but it was great advice. But what do you think has had more impact on my marriage over my life? Was it this one really good sentence that my dad gave me in this big, bold advice that we would like before the wedding? Or is it all the unlimited lessons that I can't even remember by seeing a faithful father and husband day after day? A father who made mistakes and repented and confessed sin to me. A father who repented and confessed sin to his wife. A father who disciplined me because I lied about having done my devotions that day. A father who was faithful in consistently teaching lessons. Men of Redeemer Reformed Baptist Church, whether you are a husband or not, whether you have children or not, God is calling you to be consistently faithful. Consistently faithful. It is not once in a while grandiose things that God demands. He demands consistent faithfulness. And I think we see this specifically tied to this sign. 
you might think, God, oh, there's a big sign from this message today or that day or what I read. Now's the time to teach the lesson, right? A hand shows up in a sign. I'd love something like that in my life. But I ask, turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 12. We're going to hear the words of Jesus and what he has to say about those demanding a sign. And again, I want to frame this in the context of what do you think has more value? Is it the one big good advice, the one big act of love, the one really good and true maybe even conversation with your children or with your wife? Or what matters more? Is it daily faithfulness? We're going to look at Dan, uh, excuse me, Matthew chapter 12, verse 38 through 41. And it's, we're going to see this request for a sign. Starting in verse 38 of Matthew 12. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he, being Jesus, answered them and an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. You do not need a big sign. If the disembodied fingers show up, it is too late. It's too late for Belshazzar. What your children need is a dad who, regardless of how he is feeling, prays with his children every day. They drive me nuts, and yet I need to pray with them. I have to have patience and mercy. I mess up, get in a fight with my wife, and I have pride, and yet I need to pray with my wife. It does not matter how you feel. It does not matter how you have been raised. It doesn't matter if your dad was a bad example. Men of Redeemer Reformed Baptist Church, God calls you to consistent faithfulness. That is how you get a heavy family. When you get weighed and your family is weighed, how? It is through the gospel being consistently heard in your household. Will you say, men, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord? And then will you say it again and again and again? Now, don't worry, ladies. You get your chance to have some self-reflection, some pleasant thoughts. I think the smothering mother comes naturally. It wasn't my wife saying, hey, hun, we need to just let the babies cry it out to, to learn to self-soothe and sleep at night. That's me going, let him cry, let him cry. No baby's ever died from crying, let him cry. Of course, my wife's going, it's hard, this hurts. And it is beautiful how God has designed the family. And yet, mothers, do you wait until the hour of need to say the harsh thing? Do you recognize your children have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? They, as of the day they were conceived, Dan, David tells us, in sin I was conceived in my mother's womb. They, sinning happens from the beginning, and they are destined for an eternal destination that is not with God, but eternal torment. And if you avoid talking about the consequences of sin, how can you talk about the truth of the gospel with your children? How can you talk about the truth of the gospel with your husband? Regardless, maybe you even have a husband who is an abinidus, a spiritual abinidus. He doesn't lead me consistently. I don't really feel like it. I'm tired from work. Today's not a good day to go to church. You show up to church. He's not here with you. Maybe you have a spiritual abinidus of a, of a husband who has actually left you and abandoned you. Maybe he only loves you when you are physically intimate or give him what he wants, makes his favorite meal, whatever it might be. We've heard this with Belshazzar. We know it's for sure true with the mother. God requires consistent faithfulness out of you as a woman, whether you are a mother, wife, single, a daughter, any woman. God demands consistent faithfulness regardless of your circumstances. You are to love your husband. You are to take care of your children and teach them, discipline them, raise them. 
tell your Belshazzars about Daniel and his God Most High. The painful things. And perhaps most painful of all, you need to tell your children to love the Lord their God far more than you. If it means alienating your relationship long-term with your child because you've told them the gospel again, do it. Tell them the gospel again. The gospel will allow them to be weighed as sufficient, not as light on the day of judgment. No one knows the sin of their children more than moms. Most of that sin from our children is against their moms. You need to tell them of the weight of sin and not wait until it's too late. Belshazzar, precious little baby, this is all of us. This is all of us. Ephesians 6.4 talks about fathers not provoking their children to anger, but instead raising them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Belshazzar did not have that. Proverbs 22, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. These are the things that a Belshazzar should have had. This is what God has ordained for the family. And yet this is all of us. It does not matter what your mother has done, your father has done, your circumstances. God demands consistent faithfulness. God demands consistent faithfulness. There is not room in Christ's kingdom for in and out believers. God commands us in Proverbs. He says, focus your eyes on the path ahead, turning not to the left or to the right. Our eyes are to be ahead. We have to be consistent and faithful. In John 14, Jesus tells us, "Though if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. It doesn't say if your dad was good, if your mom was good, if your marriage is good, if your finances are good, if your circumstances are good. It does not matter. It does not matter. Belshazzar, it does not matter that in Daniel 5, we have this man who has been abandoned and left by his dad. He's left to die by his dad. His mother comes in and gives him advice when it's just too late. It does not matter. The only thing that will determine your weight when you are weighed, the only thing that will determine your family's weight when they are weighed, is the gospel. If you are counting on being a decent person when you are weighed in the balance, let me tell you, your sin will pull that scale straight down and you with it into hell. Your balance it will be so far out of whack, you will be so light, there is not a chance you can measure up to your sin. We know this. We can do our law and gospel every week. The only thing that can balance out the scale is if the other side is filled with the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus is the only thing that weighs enough for God. And this is where, yes, we need salvation, but I'm telling you, you have expectations beyond that, which is secure the salvation for your children. And the only contribution you can have to their salvation is to teach and to pray. Teach and pray. Teach and pray. Secure salvation for your wife. Teach and pray. It does not matter that she's not a believer. It does not matter that she has different philosophies on life. It does not matter her background, that she's been abused. It doesn't matter that you've been abused. It does not matter. When God comes and weighs us, that does not matter. All that matters is the blood of the lamb and whether you have it or not. Teach consistently, faithfully. Teach them by women, by being a meek, gentle spirit. As it says in 1 Peter 3, a gentle spirit. Show them in faithfulness and your actions, teaching your children to pray and to confess. Fathers, lead your households. Don't be a spiritual nabinidus. It's not my job to raise your children. It's not our elders' job to raise my children. We are here to teach and to convict, and the Holy Spirit is going to be the one who does the work. But you have been given special blessing and opportunity to consistently and faithfully lead your household. Back into our text, let's look, lastly, at mean Pastor Danny. Okay, we have this dramatic scene set up. They call in mean Pastor Danny, and we see in verse 13, we see, then Daniel was brought in before the king, and the king answered and said to Daniel, 
What does this spoiled baby say? You are the Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah. Conveniently use the word exiles. He's already sucking up. He didn't say, you're one of my slaves, right? We conquered you. You're one of the exiles. My dad was an exile. Whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. I have heard that you, I have heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men and enchanters have been brought in before me to read the writing and make known to me its interpretation. But they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I've heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read, <clears throat> excuse me, throat. Uh, now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Belshazzar is trying to buy Daniel off. Belshazzar wants comfort. He does not want the truth. His heart does not want the truth. He wants comfort. He tries to buy Daniel off. Interpret this in a way that is satisfactory and to my liking. I will give you this great thing that I promised to whoever else could soothe me. Then Daniel answers and says to the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. Daniel is steady Eddie. He has been the same person throughout all of these stories. And when you start to connect them together and string them together, you see the consistent model of consistent faithfulness in Daniel. Here he is in front of one of the most tone-deaf possible people. Nabinidus, his father of Belshazzar, is off to war and could die. And what is Belshazzar doing? Throws a feast with a thousand lords. Time to party. What is he partying with? The vessels of Daniel's God the, from the temple that have been taken out. He is feasting and drinking to Bel Marduk with the Most High God's vessels of worship. You've got to believe when Daniel comes in and starts reading this judgment to him that he's going, like this to some servant to say, get those off the table. This doesn't look good, right? And yet, here in the midst of all this, Daniel, who is, <laughs> sees the writing, God has blessed him with the interpretation. I feel like he could pretty in his right mind go, why would I even tell you this? You're going to die in just a minute. Let me just walk away, right? You, you are so unsightly and so unholy in what you are doing at this table. I need to walk away. But instead, what does he do? He says, even though I don't need to answer you, even though I don't need your riches, give them to someone else. I have no allegiance to you. I have allegiance to my God. Despite that, I will faithfully tell you of my God most high. This should sound familiar. Daniel, when he first came into exile with Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, he was asked to eat at the, ta ta uh, the table of the king. And at the king's table, they were eating of meats that were offered at, for, at, for idols, but more importantly, it was a sign to eat of it. It wasn't that there was something in and of the meat itself, but it was in a sign of allegiance to the god Bel, Marduk. And Daniel said, no, we're going to eat vegetables. They were faithful. They sought God in prayer. They tried to deal wisely with the captain of the king's guard and with, um, uh, with the chief, uh, chief eunuch, the chief steward. And in the midst of that, what does God do? God blesses him. God gives him blessing. He sought God, not the wealth and riches of Babylon. Then what does he do again? Just a little bit later, because of the failure of the Chaldeans, magicians, enchanters, astrologers, the whole gaggle, they fail in interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream. So Nebuchadnezzar says all of the wise men and their retinue are going to be killed. And Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael being in the Royal Training Academy of the Chaldeans is to be killed along with the other three. And so what happens? He says, let me go to God in prayer. And the answer he gets from God is not a giddy one. It is a judgment on Nebuchadnezzar. And so he comes back and despite, despite what will certainly be his death by telling bad news to a king, he faithfully goes and speaks to the king anyway and says what God would have him do. What happens again later? Time goes by, we have Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, not Daniel, but in this golden image that is stood up by Nebuchadnezzar. And what do the, those three do when they are accused of not bowing and worshiping the statue Nebuchadnezzar stood up? 
they specifically told Nebuchadnezzar, kill me if you want. I have no need to answer you. They say, I have no need to answer you. And yet, they say, but I will. The God most high will kill whom he will kill, and he will save us if he chooses to save us. And we know, then, that Christ comes in and saves them in the fiery furnace. They do not know the outcome, but they will be faithful. And then Daniel, again, in this story that he is now recounting, he was faithful in his dealing with Nebuchadnezzar and telling Nebuchadnezzar about turning into a beast. And even though it was bad news, he even says, oh, he becomes concerned when he hears the vision from Nebuchadnezzar and he tells him its interpretation. He tells him the bad news and faces the consequences. He is steady, Eddie. This is the model of our consistent faith. This is who we are to be. This world is full of sinners and it starts in my household. It starts in my household. It starts in my heart. As Daniel has consistently come in and told him of the God Most High to anyone who would listen, he has been consistently faithful. When Daniel is weighed, and when Daniel is weighed in the balances, he will not be found wanting, not because of his faithfulness, but because of the faithfulness of God and the blood that is on the other side of the scale. Stop putting your children's life at risk. Do not put your children in the throne left alone. Give them the gospel and that daily teaching of the gospel. Do not leave your wife to fend for herself. Wives, do not fend for yourselves and not your children, not your husband, not your household. Speak of the things of God regularly and out loud, regardless of how you feel, regardless of how your children feel, regardless of any emotion, consistent faithfulness. That is what is demanded. God is bringing about his will through Daniel and through this dysfunctional family. And in spite of the natural dysfunctional state of my family, which is a heart of sin, God has changed that for me and for my wife, and I pray for my children. I pray that God will allow this church and you all to hear the gospel and to consistently and faithfully march forth and preach of the God Most High to your family every day. Please pray with me. God, you are the God most high, and we praise you and extol you for that. We thank you for what you've done. We pray that you make us a church of Daniels, that we don't focus on the signs and need the big dramatic thing. Instead, we hit layup after layup, single after single. We just day by day by day walk with you, Lord. We know we cannot make ourselves be faithful. It is only from you that faithfulness comes, and we pray that you will bless us with that faithfulness. But Lord, you have commanded us to pray for that faithfulness, and we pray to you now for it. Please keep our steps right, keep our words right, and our focus on you at all times. In the precious name and blood of Jesus, we pray to you, our Father. Amen.